Psalm 24 of David, a psalm. The The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Saviour. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is he, this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. Well, good day, everyone. Uh, my name's Scott. I'm really glad to be with you today. Uh, my family's just spent a couple of weeks away on holidays. We got to go over to the, uh, the New South Wales coastline where both our families live. Uh, Pip's, my wife, Pip, her, her brother got married, uh, which was really nice being able to bring all the family together for that. And um, we got to see my parents too, and, and, and we got to stay with them for a little bit. And when we were at the airport, we even got to see David Koch live and in the flesh. Hmm? It was special, wasn't it? Despite the sighting of Koshi, the biggest event, or one of the biggest events at least of our holiday, was uh, when my dad found a snake. We're staying with my parents and their neighbours were away on holidays somewhere, so my dad was doing all the little odd jobs around their place, you know, get the mail out and put the bins in and things like that. And one day he's in their backyard, he needs to check the skimmer box of their pool And of course, what is sitting right next to this skimmer box is a long, thick black snake. So Dad decides the skimmer box can wait a day or two. It's not unusual really to get the snakes around that area. There's a lot of bushland around. But anyway, the next day Dad goes back and, uh, well, there's a snake there again. Um, We're thinking maybe he's had a meal recently and he's just a bit lazy. Maybe he's got a nice bit of sun there. Not quite sure but we'll just leave him be so the skimmer box can wait again. But on the third day, Dad decided, look, I've got to do something about this. It can't wait any longer. And so the confrontation with the snake was coming. Now, for me, personally, I enjoy seeing a snake, as long as it's at the zoo where there's that thick glass window between us. But still, I couldn't let my dad go out there alone. I thought that would be a bit cruel. So I said, look... I'll go with you. And I went and I put my joggers on because I wanted to be able to make a quick escape. So we're ready to get out the door. And and, uh, then my wife, Pip, says, look, I think I'll come too. All right. You're a little bit pregnant, so I'm guessing you'll stay back a bit. But I didn't say that out loud. And over the road we go. We get across there. And sure enough, the snake is still there or thereabouts next to the skimmer box of the pool. And so I stand on one side, kind of throw things over the other side, getting to to scare and move it off, and, well, that's not working. But Pip, on the other hand, she decides to kind of scoot around the edge of the pool. She wants to get a close look. She's a country girl, see? She's, I don't know, they're a bit crazy sometimes, I think. (laughs) Inside, I'm thinking, steady on, Pip, kind of ease back a little bit. But then again, I don't want to sound like I'm scared, so I don't say that out loud. I just get nervous on the inside. 
In the meantime, Pip edges closer and closer and closer, and eventually she just reaches down and picks the snake up. (laughs) And would you believe it was all made of rubber? (laughs) It was a fake snake. Sometimes it's important to know what's in front of you, isn't it? It's important to know what's in front of you because when you do, you know how to act. You know how to react. If that had been a real snake, well, Pip would just be a crazy person to pick it up. But it wasn't real, and so I ended up being the crazy person who was over the other side of the pool trying to flick sticks at it. (laughs) When you know what you're dealing with, you can make good choices about what to do. That's true about snakes, and it's even more true about God. So there's all sorts of ideas out there about who God is. And so it can be hard to know then, well, what do I do with him? Would I be able to just go up and shake God's hands, and would we be all right like that? Do I have to kind of bow down and keep saying, praise God, praise God, as I get close to him? Should I just run and hide from God? It's only when I know what God is like that I can know how to respond to him. And that's why Psalm 24 is really good for us to hear today. The psalm has three parts, and three scenes even. Each part moves to a new scene. And at each scene, we get to grasp hold something new about God. And as we grasp hold of something new about God in each of the three scenes, we also see how we're meant to respond to our God. So I'm going to pray and ask God for help as we dive into this psalm. Let's pray. Our Father God in heaven, we thank you that we don't have to guess what you're like, but you tell us in your word. So Lord, please now, as we come to hear you speak, give us ears that are open, minds that are undistracted, and hearts that are willing to listen to you. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Okay, in the first scene of Psalm 24, we're we're taking a step back and we're looking down at planet Earth. This is scene one, is planet Earth. Look at verses one and two. It says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. We're looking down on the world, and we're told to notice everything that's in it. That is, the moths and polar bears and squirrels and red-lipped batfish and whatever else is there. But not just, no, don't just notice the things in it. Also notice all who live in it. That is, the city slickers and the country bumpkins. Notice the, uh, the Anglos and the Asians, the first Australians. And that is, take a look at everything and everyone Because the psalm tells us that all of this is God's. Everything. It belongs to him because he made the world. He founded it. He established it. Planet Earth is his. When you think about it, who else could make that claim? Who else could say, oh yeah, the world belongs to me? Presidents and politicians? Not really. Because they come and they go, don't they? We vote them in, we vote them out again. And even when they're in, they can't control their own governments, let alone, well, the whole country, let alone the whole world. 
So presidents and politicians, they could never say this. What about giant corporations and, and, and the mega rich? But really, they also come and they go, don't they? And if we think they're getting too much power, we just change the laws, we decide to rip more taxes out of them, so never they can never really gain control of the world. Really, no one can make the claim that God is making here. Because if they did, we'd just laugh at them. It's ludicrous for anyone to say, I, the world belongs to me. And maybe that's just it. Maybe you think that no person can make this claim. Not even God. I reckon this is probably where most of us are at. As we hear this claim, we hear that God saying, everything and everyone belongs to me. We hear it, and even if we've been at church all our lives, we often hear this and we think, yeah, nah. As we can understand the claim, and, and, and in our heads we might agree with it, but it actually is such a big claim, it's so all-encompassing, and, but then in our lives, how do we actually live that out? It's, 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 it's like it's too big for us. And we just go on living as if it wasn't true. And so the psalm here is confronting us. It's saying the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world belongs to God and everyone who walks on it. God is saying, I have a claim on your life. Whether you acknowledge me or not, you belong to me. So how do you see your life? Do you see yourself as owned by your job or owned by your mortgage or owned by whatever? Probably not. I reckon most of us see ourselves as belonging to me. I, I belong to me. My life is mine. That's actually... There's so many songs that really sing that out. These, these are the anthems of successive generations. For my generation, uh, there was a Bon Jovi song, It's My Life, he screams out. That's the anthem. Pearl Jam have a song which is basically the same. It's, it's I Am Mine. That's the, that's the, that's the chorus line. He, they sing, I know I was born, I know that I'll die, but this in-between bit, it's mine. It belongs to me. I'll do with it what I want. Different words, but the same meaning is I belong to me. It's, it take Frank, Frank Sinatra was another one, wasn't he? Uh, what was his great reflection on life? What he wanted to say when he died was, I did it my way. I belong to me. Is that the way you think about your life too? Or do you see yourself as belonging to God? As we look on at planet Earth we see that our God is our creator. And because he's a creator, he's the owner of us. And so planet Earth leaves this question ringing in our ears. Do you see yourself as belonging to God? Scene one fades and we're taken back in time to scene two. Look at verse three. Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. For scene two, we're standing at the foot of a mountain. It's not just any old mountain, this is a this is a unique mountain. Scene two is a unique mountain. It's the mountain of the Lord. We're talking about Mount Zion in the midst of the city of Jerusalem. This is the place where the temple of God is. This is the place where God lives in a special way. 
We're standing at the foot of the mountain looking up. And as we gaze up on this mountain, the question hangs in the air. Who can go up there? Who, who can stand in the presence of God? It's where we're confronted with another truth about God. That God is holy. It's not the mountain that's holy. It's not the place itself that's holy. But the God who dwells there is holy. That's an odd thing, isn't it? Uh, holiness. We don't often talk about something being holy. To be holy means to be set apart. So you can have things that are holy. In the Old Testament, there's lots of things that are holy. There's furniture that's holy. There's, there's tongs that are holy. There's even a recipe for incense candles that's holy. Because these things are set apart for a special use. They don't, they're not to be used in ordinary life. They're to be used in the service of God at the temple. They're set apart. God himself is holy too. That is, God is set apart. He's set apart by creation. If you take everything that exists and divide it into two groups, over here is the created things, over there is the uncreated things. And then if you took everything in the world and put them into the different groups they belong into, well, everything you could possibly find would go into the created group, everything except for God. God's not created. He's the creator. So you see here, God is in himself. He's set apart. He's separate from everything else. In terms of creation, God is holy, but there's more to God's holiness than that. God is also holy in his moral perfection, which is just a fancy way of saying that God is good, that, that, that God is always good, that he's never evil. He's never even, he's never even neutral God is good always in his thinking, in his speaking, in his actions, in his very being, who he is at his core. God is good, totally, 100%. So good that he cannot stand sin. It's like a repugnant stench. That it won't, it, it's not allowed to be in his presence. He's set apart from sin, separated from it. God is holy, so back to that question, who can approach this holy God? And the answer is, the answer is in verse 4. The one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. Clean hands, pure heart. Originally, this psalm was read and sung by the ancient nation of Israel. And they had all these laws that were given to them. Laws about how to be clean. Do this, don't do that. Wash like this. And if you'd followed these laws, you were technically clean. You could go up to the temple and you could worship God there. But I'm guessing you probably see the problem with this, can't you? As my hands might be clean, but my heart ain't pure. On the outside, I'm, I could seem, seem like a good bloke. But on the inside, it's, it's a different story. I can say my hands are clean of murder, and yet my heart still burns with anger. I can say that my hands are clean of adultery, and yet my heart still burns with the delights of its own lusts. 
How can I approach God? If I'm not pure, and, and I'm not, how can I approach God? The answer is I can't. I'm just not good enough. God's holiness means that me, a sinner, I must be separated from him. Which is quite an unsettling answer, isn't it? It it maybe even sounds too judgy, too restrictive. Come on, God, just chill out for a little bit, won't you? Can't you just accept me for who I am? But leaves us with a challenge. Will I ignore what God says about me? Or will I accept what God says about me? When we read this psalm, we should feel a sense of despair. How can I ever approach God? I'm not pure. How can I come to him? I can't. That's the sharp edge of this psalm. It should drive us to despair. Because when we're in that point of despair, only then do we grasp the magnitude of what Jesus has done and of who Jesus is. Because in Jesus, we can actually come back to God. Jesus dies and rises again. And in his death and resurrection, Jesus washes us clean. He gives us purity. Not that he makes us suddenly become perfect beings. Christians aren't perfect, far from it. If you want a demonstration of that, just hang around church for long enough. But Jesus clothes us in his perfection. So when I come before God, God doesn't see my messy life God sees Jesus' perfection on me. So it comes down to this, friends. We cannot approach God on our own. In all his holiness, God cannot accept us. God will not accept us. And yet there's hope because we can come to God. We can go to God relying fully on Jesus Have you done that yet? Have you come to God, not on your own, but on the basis of what Jesus has done? If not, why not make today that day? Come talk to me later or talk to someone else here that you trust. It's too important to let this wait, isn't it? But if you have done this, if you've come to God with Jesus... Friend, rejoice. I rejoice. I really mean that. Be glad. Because of Jesus, you're actually accepted into God's presence. Because of Jesus, you've received the blessing that verse 5 talks about. You've received the vindication that verse 5 talks about. Preach this to yourself day after day, friends. This is good news. Rejoice in Jesus. We've taken a step back and we looked at the all of planet Earth, scene one, planet Earth. And then we visited a very unique hill in scene two. But now it's time for scene three. Check out verse seven. This is scene three. It starts, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. For scene three, we're at the gates of an ancient city. 
And the crowd is crying, open up the gates, open up the gates. And the gatekeepers are asking, well, who's coming? Tell us who's coming. And the response comes back, it's God. It's our God. It's the Lord. And as the scene unfolds, we see then something that's true about God. God is the victor. That's the image of God here. He's a warrior returning from battle. He's won the war. He's strong. He's mighty in the time of battle. And he's now returning home. And the cry goes out, open up the gates for this great warrior to come back in. It's an image that some of us might find a little unsettling, a little uneasy. Because when we think about war, it only conjures up bad ideas. War brings death. War kills innocent people. War brings... Uh, morally, unque- morally questionable things happen in times of war. War is an, an ugly, ugly thing. And so we hear this about God and we shrink back because that doesn't quite sound like God, does it? But war was part of the ancient life. When this psalm was written, war was quite a common thing. Invading countries are there. They're vying for the best land, trying to get your best land off you so they can plant their crops there and feed their people from there. Oh, the, 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 the superpowers of that time, they keep invading too because they want more subjects. They want more land. They want to get more taxes and more money for themselves. And so your army is important and victory for your army is very important. It's something to be celebrated. You can imagine, can't you, the army going out for battle. And when the army goes out for battle, the whole city kind of just waits and and, and looks on the horizon, waiting to see who's going to come over. We want to see our, our own army come back over the horizon, back towards us. Because if we see the foreign army coming, that means disaster. Your army has lost now you're the target. And so you either run, you, you get out of there as quick as you can and try and find a space to, to hide, or you, you stay put in the city, you hide in the city, and you shut the gates, you close the doors, you hide, and, and really you just hope that this army moves on to somewhere else because if they get into the city, it's not pretty. But if you look out on the horizon and you see it's your army returning It's your army coming back. That's a completely different story. You're filled with a great sense of relief. Joy even. Because now you get to remain free. Now your life will go on. So you throw open the gates and you celebrate this returning army. You throw a party. It's like when we had those ticker tape parades after the, after the Olympic Games or some kind of sporting thing. Our athletes have been victorious and so we throw open the city and we celebrate it. We have a party. It's like the famous video, that famous picture of the man dancing down the main street of Sydney. Straight after World War II is over, he's captured dancing down the street. He's dancing because the war is over. The battle was won. And so you celebrate. And that's the image we get here at the city gates. God riding back into the city. A great victor, a great warrior. And now the city is thrown into raptures to party. That's why there's that, the, it's, it's repeated, verses 7 and 8, repeated in verses 9 and 10. That's why there's this great cry out that God is the King of glory. 
It's a party. The ancient nation of Israel were the first ones to sing this song. And for them, this song was a very real thing. When other nations invaded, they were told not to trust in their military, uh, not to trust in their weapons, not to trust in their strategic prowess. They were to trust in God. Because in God, they'd be victorious. But for us today, we too can sing this song. Not that we're a nation, not that God has given us a patch of land to defend, but just as God was a victor back then, God is a victor now. But our victory is something better than defending a little bit of land. In Jesus, God has won for us a better victory, a victory this time where sin has been defeated, where death has been crushed, and where Satan himself has been conquered and overthrown. This is the victory that God has won for us in Jesus, friends. And so the call goes out for us too then. Celebrate this victory. Open up the gates. Let God, the victor, come in and party. Have a, revel in what God has done. So again, I want to ask you, have you welcomed God into your life? Have you thrown open the gates of your life to him and started to join the party? If not, isn't today the day to do that? Again, come talk to me. Chat with the person you came with, you feel comfortable with. We'd love to be with you as you start that new part of your life. But there'll be many of us here who, who have already, we've, we've, we've welcomed Jesus and we've thrown open the gates. We've started the party. And if that's you, I want to say, keep celebrating. God is the great victor. So keep celebrating. It can be a common thing, I think, for people to start the Christian life full of great joy. But then over time, that joy can fade. And concerns of life start to creep in. And after a while, the Christian life can look more like reluctance than it can joy. And look, there'll be times when living the Christian life uh, won't be easy, when it, when it'll be hard. We live in a broken world where bad things happen, where people hurt one another. Life doesn't always go the way we planned. Tears are part of the Christian life. Tears are real in the Christian experience. And yet joy is a great marker of the Christian faith. Is it there in your life? Look, if it's not, I'm not saying you should beat yourself up about it. But but make a plan. Plan to let the news of God's victory roll over you again and again. Ask others what they find so good about Jesus. Make time, make time not just to read the Bible, but but to reflect on what it's saying to you about Jesus. To, to, about the victory that God has won for you in Jesus. I'm not saying that overnight your joy is going to come back instantly like that, but, but, but that's where we find our joy. Not in the circumstances of life, but in the victory won by God through Jesus. Christians celebrate. Christians are people of joy. That's actually why we sing. Christian joy is more than singing. 
But songs are ways that we actually help us express that joy. Just yesterday, I saw the end of, of, of a cricket match. The um, Brisbane Heat beat the Sydney Sixers, and they became the women's big bash champions. And, they, and, and as they stood together at the end, they got together and they all sang out their victory song. And it was, it was passionate, it was spirited, because there's a team celebrating victory. And for them, it was a great victory. Now, if they'd sung after winning a game of cricket, how much more reason do we have to sing at the victory of God? Theirs is a victory that will last a year. Ours is a victory that will last into eternity. Friends, we have every reason to celebrate, every reason to sing. So I'm going to stop now. Normally we'd pray, but I actually think the thing we want to need to do now is to sing. So the band's going to come back up. We're going to sing together. We're going to sing a song called Hallelujah to the King of Kings. It's a great song to sing right now because it calls on us to actually rejoice, to, to celebrate the victory of God, and it gives us a chance to do that too. Let me encourage you, friends. Sing this loud, sing this passionately. If you want to celebrate the victory of God, let this song help you do that. Let's sing together. Thanks, Ben. Please stand and we'll sing. Hallelujah to the Lord of Lords, Hallelujah to the God of power. 
Let's grab a seat, friends. Let me pray for us. Our Lord and our God, the whole earth belongs to you and everything in it, including us. So we give you praise. We give you praise that you're our creator, but not just our creator, our victor, the one who gives us Jesus, Jesus who washes us clean and gives us purity, Jesus who allows us to come before you. We thank you, God, and we praise you that you're the victor, the one who's crushed sin and death and Satan, the one who's won the victory for us. God, give us great joy in this victory, we pray. Amen.